For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I am joined today by two co-hosts, only one of which is a regular co-host, Aaron Lammer. We've replaced uh, we've replaced Max with uh, one of the many children of the Longform Podcast. They don't they don't they don't each have their own identity. They're just <laughs> simply the children of the Longform Podcast. Uh, I know you uh, I know you uh, uh, have a pressing matter here, so I'll cut right to the chase. Who is on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Michelle Garcia. Michelle is a longtime reporter from all over the world, including for uh, NPR. She's done radio. She's made a documentary film that was on PBS. She reported for the Washington Post for a long time from New York. I wanted to talk to her about all of that, but in particular, a lot of writing she's been doing over the last few years about, uh, nominally sort of about the border. She's from Texas, um, but about uh, all sorts of other issues. She's written these beautiful pieces for The Baffler, a three-part series. She both wrote for and coordinated a series for Guernica about uh, reimagining the West. And she's also working on a book uh, herself. So I wanted to kind of dig into that writing, how she got there. And uh, she was really, really wonderful to talk to. And uh, I think her work is very uh, essential right now, if, uh, if I could use that term. I, uh, we've been telling people about uh, Read This Summer, all summer. Now Read This Summer. Uh, in which Jenna Wortham will be picking writers um, to come to the Decatur Book Festival on behalf of MailChimp. It is nigh upon us. It's coming uh, this weekend. Coming this weekend. So um, thanks to them. Thanks to MailChimp for all the support all summer. If you're going, you could meet Evan Ratliff because he will be there. I will be there. Keep an eye out for him. He has brilliant blue eyes. You know his uh, gravelly voice from uh, this podcast. And he would love uh, to hang out, talk, maybe maybe sign a copy of his book, The Mastermind. Hey, yeah, available now everywhere. New revelations breaking in that case uh, all the time. Also, uh, if you want to, if you want to hear like a um, like a rare, like a long form podcast rarity, you should go over and check out the Coin Talk episode in which I talked to Evan about um, whether. The subject of his book, The Mastermind, could actually be Satoshi Nakamoto. Evan, don't spoil it. Just leave the people with, with the mystery, okay? <laughs> First read The Mastermind, then listen to the podcast. In the meantime, you can go to readthissummer.com for Jenna Wortham's picks for the summer. If you're going to the Decatur Book Festival, you'll find a schedule where you can see everybody and uh, come see me too if you're in Atlanta. Uh, here's Evan and Michelle Garcia. We're going. Let's go. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. One thing that I want to talk about, which I want to get to later on, but I just wanted to start out with it, is I feel like I've spent the last 
from whenever we arranged this till now, reading your work, listening to your work, watching your work, you've worked in every medium <laughs> for <laughs> across uh, all sorts of topics. But in particular, it's an interesting time to talk to you now because the border is, you know, daily news and the border is something that you have written about in a literal sense, in an abstract sense for a long time. And I had this feeling of reading it and kind of being like having this feeling of she's been trying to tell us something for years. And like, I'm interested in what it means to you now that this is the story of the day every day that you have actually been writing about almost your whole career. And so I want to get to that. But also in your work, there's a lot of your background and where you grew up and where you came from and how that integrates with your reporting and your understanding of these issues. So I actually wanted to start back, 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 way back and have you tell me what you're from Alice, Texas. That's right. It. Go Coyotes. Yeah. Tell me about Alice, Texas. Like what, <laughs> what is it like to grow up in Alice, Texas or what was it like for you? So Alice is, and and I've always, you know, this is how I've described it to people since I was in college and Austin was, it's a small town of 20,000, now 19,000 people, smack in the middle between San Antonio and the Rio Grande Valley, which now anybody who's been following the news knows the Rio Grande Valley as the border, as the site where horrible things are done to people and where migrants are coming from all over the world. Um, Alice, Texas, to my mind growing up, was nowhere. Mm. It was, you know, cowboys and ranches. My father was a rancher. My grandfather was a rancher. My great-grandfather was a rancher. Alice was a place where very early on I didn't feel, though, that I fit in. And I think it has a lot to do with the ranch itself. Mm. And that's because... um, you know, Alice is like cul-de-sacs and it grew up around a railroad and it was, um, it's not farm, but it's not a city, right? 20,000 people. But then you go, as I did, you know, as a child going out to the ranch and things are very vivid. Life is very vivid. Mm-hmm. You watch a calf be born. A cow charged me when I was a little girl, you know, charged at me and easily would have trampled me. I would have died, right? And one of the stories that I know I've written this that really has stayed with me and, and I think about often is, so one of my jobs when going to the ranch with my dad was that he'd send me up the windmill, you know, I'd have to climb the ladder to check the water level in the tank. And you could see above the brush line. In Alice, there was only two buildings, both bank buildings, that were more than a single story, right? And so to be able to rise above and see to the, you know into the horizon from high above had a, such an impact because you realize how big you are, how much you are part of something bigger than you. And as a result of that, I was this kind of like freaky, introspective, overthinking, awkward, skinny, gangly kid with a lot of freckles who said and saw things that other people didn't. Mm. And I was, or it felt that way. And growing up in Alice, it was a gift because 
What I later learned was that it was not a little town in the middle of nowhere. It was the seat of conflict. That my people and the families had been there since before the border was created. Yeah. And where I grew up was actually in the history books known as the contested Nueces Strip. So Mexico said the border was the Nueces River, which is north of us. And uh, the United States said, no, it's the Rio Grande. And that middle strip, us, the Nueces Strip, is what the United States went and invaded Mexico in a battle over, you know, in 1846. And was that history taught to you in school? Taught to you by your family? No, you know, it was interesting because it wasn't taught in the school, and I still vividly remember our school trip to San Antonio and to the Alamo. And, you know, the lesson then, and, and to a certain degree continues today, which is that freedom is associated with the Anglos and that the people who were against freedom and democracy were the Mexicans. Never mind that the people who had arrived at, the, you know, who were fighting at the Alamo were actually migrants themselves. They were immigrants from the United States who were, you know, and we can get into the whole history of it, but who had essentially launched this revolt against the government that governed those lands, right? But you don't learn that. What's interesting in terms of my family is, you know, when I'd ask my dad or somebody, you know, how long have we been here? I mean, he would just scoff at the question. He thought it was preposterous. But I didn't get a lot of details about what had happened. And I, so I'll tell you how I f- began to find out and really think about where I came from in a different way. And that was, I was working the New York Bureau of the Washington Post. This is, I'm working with the Bureau Chief Michael Powell, who's now at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And we were working on an investigation into post-9-11 recovery funds and how they were used in New York, right? So they were going to things like, you know, Robert De Niro's Tribeca Film Festival, things like that. And we were looking into it. And I'm driving my father in his pickup truck, which I still drive, from Alice to the Valley to see his sister. And I start telling him about the investigation. And he looks at me and he said, if you keep that up, they're going to take the rest of the land we have. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, Dad, you know, d- you, know you, d- you kind of roll your eyes and go, oh, Dad, please. And he said, just wait. And so we get to his sister's house, and she tells me this entire history I, kn- I didn't know about, which was in 1891, a man had married into my father's family, married my great-great-thea, and started two newspapers from my great-great-grandfather's ranch, proceeded to amass a militia of sorts, and launch a revolution against Porfirio Diaz in Mexico from my family's ranch. This was before the, the Mexican Revolution. And as a result of that revolt, which like places like the New York Times reported on, mm-hmm. Every law enforcement agency on both sides of the border were masked to hunt him down. And when I found this out, it completely changed everything that I thought I knew about where I was from. But more importantly, I began to realize why it is or how it is the United States as sort of like whole looks at 
where I come from. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can't help but realize that the things inside of you, that sense of vastness, uh, what Tony Hiss calls, you know, the great span, which is looking at a landscape and seeing and feeling the connection to your ancestors, all made sense in a way that I'm like, this is what I belong to. Mm -hmm. This is who my people are. But you were already a journalist at that point. So when you grew up, you didn't know that history. That's not what drove you into becoming a journalist. So what drew you out of Alice and into journalism before that? Well, I think, you know, when you're not necessarily sort of literally taught certain things, you are taught it through family opinion, family sentiment, the sort of culture that you're brought up in. And so I remember being a little girl and going with my grandmother to meet a man who was very cultured, very educated, very uh, sophisticated. And he was living in a town that's even smaller than my hometown, Falfurias, to the south. And it turns out that he was a columnist in Mexico City who was living in exile because he had written a very controversial book and so he had to flee. You know, so when you have either moments like that or offhand remarks or, or a family, both my mother and my father, that sort of contest the prevailing narrative about who we are, where we're from, or when people say something like, you know, a rendition of the Alamo and they don't accept it. Mm -hmm. You are already learning to be skeptical. You're already learning that there is something else. And add to that, that um, my, you know, because my family has been there for so long, a lot of the people who worked at the county courthouse were related to me. <laughs> and my father was the chairman of the Democratic Party. And so he knew everyone in the courthouse. And so he would take me when I was a little girl and basically like just set me loose in this building and I would just everybody knew who I was that I was the daughter and I'd like interview them I wanted to know what their job like what does the county clerk do you know what does the county judge do what does the DA do you know and I, I started writing letters to my congressman when I was a little kid like in my cursive <laughs> and you know I'd get a response and free books <laughs> you know all of that to me was amazing mm -hmm. because you know, I couldn't even drive. I couldn't even get myself to the city limits. But already, you know, in a child's mind, your world, you know that the world is so much bigger than what you can see. Mm -hmm. And whether you're, you know that at the top of a windmill or because you ask questions. Mm -hmm. But that's what came from it. And I, I was listening to, a, I think, a live kind of storytelling thing that you did where you talked about wanting to get out, like that you wanted to exit into that larger world. And so what was your path to doing that? Well, so is that the Michelle has a polyamorous relationship yes. with her? Yeah. <laughs> so I have a polyamorous relationship with where I live yeah, to this day. I thought it was over, but it's not. It continues. <laughs> um, so the polyamory is I live, I go between New York and Texas and it's it keeps going. Actually, I just got back from Texas three weeks ago. Uh, I was on a residency for six months. Um, but to answer your question about what got me out was restlessness. And I was such a rebel. And I was so um, 
I was punk. I was angry. You know, I was Sex Pistols. I was the Ramones, you know? I wanted to kick doors down. And so you have this fury. And you and and, and this is an interesting thing and, and and this goes to like why, you know, why words matter. You have a fury that no one has articulated, put into words, taught you how to channel. And so now you go about the world like a loose cannon, which is what I did, looking to find where you can sort of catalyze all of this energy. And so, you know, I always knew I was going away to college. And so I did. I started in San Antonio, ended up in Austin. And then it was just like, I thought the road forward was literally north. And it was until the road turned around. And I think the road started to turn around around the time I had that conversation with my dad in the truck driving to the valley about this revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And realizing that the things that, you know, like a lot of young people, you think you know so much and the degree where that certainty is, you know, inversely proportionate to what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And also, there's a wonderful thing that comes from you don't know enough to be scared. So you just keep going. And I just kept going. How did you literally kind of break in? Like, what were your first stories? Did you start? I couldn't tell if you started in radio or you started in in print. I'd started in radio. I wanted to be a writer. So, of course, I went straight into public radio. And that all started, you know, so I'm in Austin. I'm trying to get, you know, internships. I'd had one in radio in Austin. And I get this internship with the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. Okay. And what that internship does is that it places, you know, that you're placed in a government office, right? Someplace in D.C. You're going to spend the summer in D.C. It's mm-hmm. like right after I, gra- you know, right after I graduate, I'm going to spend the summer in D.C. And if you know D.C., so in like the north part of it is Catholic University, and that's where we were all housed. And my internship was way down in Virginia at the Bureau of Land Management, BLM. Woo. Wild horses. (laughs) Wild horses. And I'm like, I'm going to spend three months in Washington, D.C. and not walk away with a clip. I won't have anything to show. What am I going to have? Like they had me doing graphic design, right? I mean, so I would moonlight at this news. It was this Washington-based newsletter called the Hispanic Link News Service, which basically birthed a whole generations of journalists who went on to work for every publication imaginable. And I would go there at night and write. And I walked away with clips. And so what happened was the editor of that newsletter became the news director of a radio show and got me hired. In D.C. In D.C. And that was my first job. And so there I show up. You know, I don't have a scarf. I don't have gloves. I don't even know to wear a hat. You know, I waddle over the, you know, ice. I don't, you know, I know nothing. I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, I'm this, I mean, that's the thing is like, I'm country and I don't even know it, right? <laughs> well, you were country and punk. Yes, together, you know, and it's like, yeah, of course, it's going to work. I'm from Texas. <laughs> and so that's what happened. I mean, I, you know, I was in D.C., I stayed in D.C., but then I left and there was there's been these moments throughout my entire life where I'm somewhere and I leave. So I'm in DC, I leave, I go to Mexico. And then I go 
to Seattle. Then I moved to New York. And so what's th- driving it? What's What causes you to make those kind of shifts? There are moments where you feel like something's ended, and the way for me to find what comes next is I have to go out and look. And so I did that. I went to Mexico, and then I went to El Salvador on a night fellowship where I trained community radio station, community radio stations. I visited them, and I had left the post to do that. And there was a lot happening. Um my father died. And I think, you know, his death marked the beginning of an entirely new way of seeing things. Because if you've ever experienced grief in in, in all kinds of, in all forms, one of the things that grief does is that it unwraps the pretty decoration, wrapping bullshit that we can contain our lives in is all blown to hell. Mm-hmm. That you see things so sharply that you wonder, okay, what am I doing? What is this about? And you begin to question things. And that's what happened, was I began to question. Around the time I went to El Salvador was um, also a time where I, I started doing stories that were very different. Um, in what way? What it became... And it took a while. You know, I, I came back from El Salvador and did a story that, you know, Lynn Duke was a, a reporter at the Washington Post, and, and she has since passed away. She was an amazing journalist, and she had become an editor. And that was the first time I came back and I pitched her the story about the border wall. Mm-hmm. And it was focused on the land the government was seizing in order to build the border wall. This was the first time I ever wrote about where I was from. I mean, it's in the valley and the valley south of where I'm from, but... It was, you know, where I'm from. And that woke me up to a couple of things. The huge amount of responsibility you feel when you write about where you're from. I mean, you always carry that sense of responsibility about truth and facts and so forth. But when you do it about where you're from, it's huge. It's so huge. And to be able to write and describe the landscape of where I grew up you know, so I'm like, I have these flour tortillas and I'm burning them, liter- you know, intentionally on the gas stove so I can smell the, the tortilla. And I'm listening to Ramon Ayala over and over again. Like, I want to, like, feel the mesquite, you know, <laughs> while I'm writing. I mean, it was, you know, and I'm doing this at the, like, uh, in my apartment in Brooklyn. And then while I'm working at the New York Public Library, you know, in the Midtown one, I mean, it made no sense. Um, you know, I'm trying to channel this like Texas feel. And that was huge because it was like to be able to write about where I was from was in a way to capture a spirit of storytelling, a, a spirit of what it means to be a journalist in a way that I had not known before. And after that, after El Salvador, uh, I ended up writing when I went years later, it took a while for it to sort of incubate. I, you know, later went to the Sahara, um, to the refugee camps of the Saharawi from Western Sahara. Um, This is in Algeria. And then I went to Mexico City. And while I was in Mexico City, I was asked by a friend to contribute to this anthology about the refugees. And so I wrote this piece called The War of Forgetting. 
uh, for Guernica. Well, for the book, it was in Spanish. Mm -hmm. But when I came back to the States, I pitched it to Guernica and they published it. And that was, you know, I basically described going to the Sahara and taking all of these copious notes and, you know, writing down the time and the location and what do they call the tents and what, you know, just all of the details you do for narrative piece and realizing that this kind of ongoing chronology, ongoing story formation in my head is not true. That the facts are all there and they're all accurate and they're all right. That I began to wonder, just because you have the facts right, does that mean that the story is true in its essence? I had to wonder, is the reason why I pay attention to certain things that people say to me, like when they present me with the people I'm going to stay in their big tent and they call them, this is your family. Does that have meaning to me? Because now I feel, you know, my mother had since passed. Does this have meaning to me now because I've lost my parents? Mm -hmm. Or does it have meaning? Mm -hmm. Does the fact that, you know, they go and visit each, they have these rare visits of the families that have been broken up between the Sahara and the refugee camps, does that have meaning? What am I seeing? How am I interpreting it? Why, you know, through whose eyes? Is it through the eyes of grief? Or is this what's happening? It really began to um, get me to see the different angles and perspectives and how powerfully they play into the stories that you select, the angles you tell them from, and the intention. But again, it really like honed in on that question of, you know, can the facts all be right and the story be completely wrong? And of course, the answer to that is yes. And, and it that, happens all the time. But that feels like that could either open up avenues for you to try to tell stories in different ways, but it could also be paralyzing. Like you, once you know that, then how do you ever decide that you've approached the truth rather than just gathered a basket of facts that you're pretending is close to the truth? Because I think you go into it with an uh, self-awareness. It's the process of, I'm thinking this, I'm wondering this, and instead of ignoring it, I put it into the story. Mm -hmm. And what came from that was, and I think a lot of really good narrative pieces have this, which is you see the writer unpacking both their discovery of the other, but their own sense of what they're coming into it with. And that's what that piece was for me. Is um, And it was the beginning of a change in my direction. But in a larger sense, I feel like a journalism career, a reporting career, you were at the Post. I mean, you were, you were, you, you could have gone in a certain direction, but it, it sounds like you sort of had an awakening where you realized what you actually wanted to do couldn't be done within those boundaries. But then that also kind of blows up the normal career path that you might have taken. Yes. But the thing is, the timing was great because journalism itself was being blown to hell. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, had I stuck around a little longer, I wouldn't have, had, you know, probably wouldn't have had a job or it, it, layoffs. I mean, the industry itself was going through massive upheaval. Right. So. I mean, that's the thing is, is that the willingness to reinvent myself or to explore new paths has saved me. I probably wouldn't be still writing at all if that had not been the case because, yeah, because there's so many changes. Also, too, I think that 
there are things that we're able to write about and talk about now that weren't possible five years ago, that were not possible 10 years ago. And if you wed yourself to a system of doing things, believing that it's forever, then are you truly fulfilling your mission as a journalist, which is to document and chronicle what is happening in our world? Well, that world is changing. Mm -hmm. And so I think they go together. Um, I actually taught a class and I've given talks about it's called the subject and the self, which is basically, you know, we were taught you go in and you're supposed to be objective. And then that got thrown, in, you know, into question. And then it was you're going to be balanced and fair. OK, those that's all wonderful. But what about the whole idea of examine yourself before you go in? We, we talk about things like diversity in journalism or we talk about sourcing. I, th I think a lot about you know, who we choose to believe. You don't necessarily believe either the person or what they're saying to you because what they're saying to you does not fit with the experience of life in the world as you've had it. I'll give you a quick example. It's kind of... I had to one time, this is years ago, in my rowdy days, I was in a bar. You learn a lot in a bar. Reporting. Ah, uh, no, I was drinking. No, you were just in a bar. <laughs> I was in a bar. Okay. Although I have written stories about <laughs> bars too. And um, I went into the men's bathroom to use the bathroom, right? And behind the door was, uh, you close the door and it's an ad for condoms. And there's a machine there. You can buy condoms. We don't have that in the ladies' room. I'd never seen that in the women's room. Now, if you're a dude, that's not new. That's no. like, you've seen that. Seen that, that your whole you believe life. that the world is like, yes. You believe that the world is that. You don't know that there are bathrooms without condoms, right? In okay. bars. In bars, <laughs> right? Now, we can get into the whole thing of like how it doesn't make any sense because you really should put the condoms in the women's <laughs> restroom and blah, blah, blah. I get it, right. But the truth, but here's the thing is, is that some of us go through life believing that the way we experience it is how it is. And all sorts of institutions and structures are set up to reinforce that, including journalism. Including journalism when it acts as a myth maker. And so then you have someone come along and say, no, that's actually not how it's experienced. It's experienced like this, or this is what happens. And there's a sense of disbelief. Mm -hmm. and, and it comes from, well, this doesn't, this doesn't match. I remember just a couple of months ago, I was driving. So there are checkpoints at the border, at the ports of entry, right? So when you're coming over the bridge from Mexico. But there's also checkpoints uh, 80 miles in, right? And I've gone through those number of times. And I was driving way out in West Texas with my partner, uh, who's a man. And I'm driving. And there was a tractor trailer in front of me. And the agent waves him through. So he, he keeps waving. So I think he's waving me through. Right. So I keep going. And then he starts to yell at me. Right. To stop. And then he keeps yelling at me. Now he's trying to humiliate me, right? And I'm furious, you know, because he's now asking a bunch of questions he's not supposed to ask. Um, but the point of this is that the way he's talking to me, we drive away 
And I ask my partner and tell him that would never have happened to a man. He would never have talked to a guy like that. And he's like, no. And I said, but if you send a, a white male journalist down here and he never sees that, he won't know that that's what happens. He won't know that that happens in this world to people and having not experienced it and that these people don't treat you always with the respect that you are entitled to. Mm -hmm. And so these are the kinds of questions that you ask yourself or ought to ask yourself regardless of what your background is. Um, and going into those types of stories like, you know, where I asked myself, are these facts, is my own personal place at the time, grief, shaping the story mm -hmm. in an unconscious way? Mm -hmm. And if so, okay, I could still write it, but I need to be up front and tell you. Yeah. Or show the struggle, show the conflict. And I think that actually makes for a much more interesting story. Well, you're very present if you look at like you did this Baffler series that's about the board, a three-part series. It's reported, but you're you're very present and even your own history is often present in your work. And I, going across a lot of stories, whether Guernica stories, you did some for Al Jazeera that are also like, I kept seeing these things pop up, like the Texas Rangers and that history, the history you talked about sort of discovering that was not the history that you grew up with, it's sort of laced into all these pieces across many years. And I was curious whether that was a conscious, pro like from that moment forward, was that a conscious project that you thought, okay, now I know what I want to do. I want to write where, about where I'm from and I want to do it in this way. Or did it just evolve from kind of taking on stories? You know, I, I think in many ways, from a certain angle, it looks like I write about where I'm from, but I actually don't. What I'm looking at is the gaze toward where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And that gaze is what's dominating the news right now. That gaze is what helped elect President Trump. It's that gaze that is my interest. And what happened was a really sharp shift happened, which was around, oh, this was 2009. I wrote this piece for Columbia Journalism Review called The Myths of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And in it, I talk about this uncle who tried to like, you know, who did wage revolution. Um, and in it, I explain that the way in which when he was interviewed in the 19th century, this was a period in which you have dispatches from military leaders out, quote unquote, taming the frontier, and they're getting published in places like Scribner's or Harper's or newspapers, right? Their perception became an integral part of the framework through which this country saw the frontier, saw itself, saw Mexicans, saw Mexican-Americans, and perceived violence. And it was a, a perception that had a specific intent, which was to justify violence, right? To define who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, mm -hmm. right? And so in this piece, I write, you know, they, they interview my great-great-uncle. And in the interview, he tells the New York Times, look, they're calling me a bandit. I'm not a bandit. You know, here's the issues, and the Times proceeded to call him a bandit, right? He said something like, 
I trust you to like tell my story the right way or something like right. that. And right. then they'd proceed to not. Right. And, and but what, what did they do was they replicated the formula. They they repeated the framework that had been established by people in power. And they used that framework to interpret and narrate the present reality. In 2009, you had Felipe Calderón, who at the, you know, at the time was the president of Mexico, had launched the quote-unquote drug war in mm -hmm. Mexico that has now taken the lives of some 200,000 people and tens of thousands of people have been disappeared. And I spent a considerable amount of time looking and reporting on this. And I saw that the way in which that quote-unquote drug war was narrated, discussed, was a replica of this 19th century framework that still informs the way that we talk about the border, the way we talk about this country, the way we talk about national identity. It informs our national elections. I mean, I did a documentary for PBS called Against Mexico, The, Makings of Her the Making of Hero and Enemies, and it was about the reenactments they do of the battles, you know, think the Alamo. Mm -hmm. And um, and you've got a reenactor re on both sides, playing well, either side. Right, yeah. yeah. And and I, I do the film, and then I leave the... Then, uh, this is one of the times I left the country, I go to, Me and I go to Mexico City, right? So I'm, gonna fo I'm focusing on, on the violence in Mexico City. And while I'm there, it's the 2012 election, I get this email saying, oh, PBS NewsHours featuring... Your film, as part of its election coverage, they did this write-up. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in the United States that my film about reenactments in Texas has anything to do with the election? And I looked at it, I'm like, oh, what she said, which could have been just um, copy and paste again in 2016 <laughs> and now, was that... What the issue behind the election really was about was how do we define who gets to claim the mantle of being an American? I mean, it really is, and it should be unsettling to us that um, not that we're having these conversations, but almost that there is this lack of awareness that somehow this, these narratives are so powerful, they shaped U.S. policy in Mexico in regard to, you know, organized crime and the quote-unquote drug war, so powerful that it really was the um, groundwork, the, 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 the center, the core of the election in 2016. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, bad hombres and the border and Mexicans as rapists and criminals. I mean, really? The notion that this is somehow a conversation about immigration, to me, is absurd. It is a conversation about who gets to claim and how that identity, American identity, is expressed. And right now, in many ways, it is expressed by the demonization of brown people. Well, and also, your, I feel like your work, you have been writing for a decade that this is a historical continuum that all these things always seem fresh and new but they're actually repeats of what has happened 
historically in this frame that's been developed that now just gets reapplied and reapplied, like the militarization of the border and things like that. But is that, how frustrating is it to be putting that out there and then to see it once, like cut and paste from 2008 to 2012, 2016 to today, do you feel like you're beating up against something that's immovable? No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I had this conversation with this law professor for one of the pieces in the Baffler series, and I said something about how it seemed like, you know, this history gets repeated. And he made a very important point that I re- I think I agree with, which is it's not that history is repeating itself. It's that it, this is the present moment reaching into the past to define its future. And I think that that's a very important point, which is, you know, what do you do Right. How do you make decisions in your life? Well, you base it on things precedent, right? The past. But if that past and its narration is distorted, then we need to clarify that. We need to give that some, you know, infuse that with some truth and reveal those distortions. And I think that's where I feel like my work and what the spirit of that work is, which is how do I break out of my own self-delusion, right? Am I telling their story or am I telling the sort of grief-stricken daughter, right? I'm not telling the story of where I come from. I'm telling the story of something I even know better than where I come from, which is how this country and this sort of framework operates and how it gazes at the frontier and deconstructing that. Mm -hmm. I think it's, on the contrary, the work that I've been able to have published by some really amazing editors and people who've understood what I'm trying to do was not possible just a few years ago. Really? Not because of me or whatever, because we're we're in a different place. We're having different conversations now than we were a few years ago. And it's so, um, look at the terminology we use. I mean, it's so, it is painful. It's violent. There is an element to it, though, in which that, that uncontested, ongoing narrative about what this country is, is having a confrontation it is not going to go down easily. It is not going to go down without a fight. And we see that right now in Texas, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that, you know, on the border. And I think um, I'm actually, I'm, I feel that this is a very important time. And I feel very um, pained by what happened in El Paso and particularly what followed El Paso, the massacre that left, you know, that killed 22 people, you know, after the massacre, there were so many stories in which what happened in El Paso was used by people to talk about other issues Mm -hmm. like toxic masculinity or eco-terrorism. And those are all important issues. But what it showed to me was that um, we're still not able to have a conversation or know how to talk about the violence against Latinos in this country as an inherent part of this country's history of violence and its own identity. And that this is not about immigration. 
that there is something specific to Latino violence against Latinos. There's something specific and there's a usefulness of violence. And, And so that's when... You know, and I started thinking after the 2016 election, somebody was going to do the big story, 10,000 words about the symbolism and the rhetoric and 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 so forth. And it never came. Mm-hmm. It never came about like, why is it that the border has this political function? Why is it that Mexicans are Mexican-Americans, right? Why? And it never came. And so I assembled a group of writers to put together a series that we called Rewriting the West. And in the writing of the editor's note, I wrote, I said, you know, we set out in response to this. But we can't let that define our narratives. We can't let that be the definition of a place and its people. And so instead, you know, here is a collection of stories in this series, Rewriting the West, that puts the people who of the West and this place at the center and tells the story from there, not the gaze from the East going West, but from there. And that's how you end up with like stories like Carolina Miranda's story about, you know, she pitches to me, she's like, I want to do a story about a gas station in L.A. It's like so L.A. And I'm like, okay. What is it? And it's sort of like this Chinese, like this architecture with Spanish tile. And I'm like, I get it. I see it. And she ends up doing this whole story about maps and about how we think about California and L.A. as the West. But it's not. It's the East and it's the North. And so that's what we were trying to do. But I'll tell you this about why I'm also hopeful. And not not hopeful because I'm not really into that word. Um <laughs> but that I see opportunity. In 2016, everybody kept saying that it was so awful in the months leading up to the election, just so awful. And there were horrible things that happened, you know, police shootings of black men and the bombing and at the Pulse nightclub in Florida, horrible things. And at the time before the election, I pitched this story to the Oxford American. They have now Eliza Bernays, the editor, and I pitched her what must have sounded like insanity. Because I said to her, hi, Eliza, you see all of these things that are happening right now, Standing Rock, all of these things that are happening, and some people are talking about them like, this is just a conflict, that this is, you know, we're having so much conflict in this country, right? And I said, I don't want to pitch some sort of like, you know, happy minority people story. But we have to see that within these stories, there is a very important message of uh, humanity triumphing over despair. That when the police officers were shot in Dallas, you know, during a a Black Lives Matter protest, like a march, that what followed was the police chief who gave such a moving speech about love. Love. That after the Pulse nightclub, you had Lin uh, Manuel Miranda give that speech at the Tony Award about uh, love is love is love. 
that you had black women artists for Black Lives Matter puts on the show in New York about Black Lives Matter. And, and they tell you that joy was as much as an important part of what they were focusing on as the pain. That if you do not focus on joy, the humanity is quashed. You have to focus. If all you see and all you narrate is that, you kill, you extinguish the joy in the people that, the, the possibility of joy, and also that the important part of holding on to humanity in any place mm-hmm. is the ability to hold on to your joy. Well, that makes me think of that other Oxford American piece, the, I think it's called My Name is Alex. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, more specifically about immigration and about, uh, well, you can describe it better than me, but a boy that you encountered who clearly had crossed the border and was trying to get to Houston and you were in a personal dilemma of whether or not to take him there or what to do with him, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it did present this question to the readers, ultimately, what would you do? And that's not a frame you see in immigration stories, I feel like. They're all sort of like, look at all these people doing this thing and what's happening with them and who's catching them and then they're in shelters. And this was a very an interpersonal story. And I don't really have a question there except that it reminded me well, of Well, yeah. The thing is, I don't think it's an immigration story at all. Yeah. I don't think the Alex story is an immigration story. I think what it is is there's two things to that. One is, so what happens is I was writing a story for Al Jazeera um, and I had to go have my photograph taken. And I'm staying at like a distant relative, small town, South of Alice, and I'm staying in his house. It's like a barred house, right? Like I'm on the road. And so I take this like country road. It's like, seriously, it's through ranches. Like it's just ranches. And while I'm driving, I see this kid. He's a kid on the side of the road with a jug of water. And he's trying to flag down one of the motorists. And I can see the car swerving out of the way. Now, what do you see? I mean, what is that? What do you see in that moment? And what I saw in that moment was these are people who go to church. These are people who say when they, you know, bid goodbye to each other, que vayas con Dios, you know, where they invoke God. These are people who have like a Jesus sticker, like I do on my truck, you know, on their cars, and they're swerving out of the way. Why? Why? And, you know, there's a whole number of practical reasons, right? One is that border enforcement, which is not the same as immigration, has become such that if you are caught, you know, you pick him up and you're pulled over, you can be charged with, you know, trafficking, smuggling, right? Your truck can be seized. Um, you know, if, if under civil asset forfeiture, right? Which mm-hmm. they don't have to prove your guilt. They just have to prove that the object could have been involved in a crime, right? And so I'm watching him. And um, the story's about what happens, you know? I turn around and I ask him, where is he going? Where is he from? What, you know, what's his story? Like, and I'm also... Uh, stalling, right? Because I don't know what to do with them. Like, if I pick them up, where am I going to take them? Mm-hmm. Right? I can't take them back to the house. It's not my house. 
there's nowhere to go and I can't drive to Houston. Like Houston's far. <laughs> yeah. It's like Houston's like five hours away, right? It's not like a bus station's nearby. And so what do you do? And when I filed that story, I filed that story um, while I was on a residency in Marfa. It was a Lennon fellowship. And so you know, you're in Marfa for three months. I literally sent the piece to my editor. I and you know, I've been in the, I've been in the house cooped up, and now I'm going to be free. And I jump on the bike, and I had my bag on the handlebars, and the strap came loose, and my foot got caught in it. And I like, oh, I eat it. I mean, like, I eat it. I like skid and like slide on the street. Okay, so that's not so bad because I like, you know, I caught myself with my hand on my knee. But then I skid down and then bang my mouth into the pavement. Broke this tooth right here in half. Blood everywhere. Okay, now you hit your head like that and like, I'm like immediately, all I can taste is blood and it feels like all of my teeth are loose. Like, they're all loose. They all feel like they're going to come out. I can't spit out the blood because, of course, that means all the teeth will come out with them. Okay. And I'm sitting on the side of the road, blood everywhere, and this truck drives by. And I have my hands are all covered in blood, and I pick them up in the air so they can see them because I want them to stop. And they stop for me. And when I presented the piece in Marfa... I asked the audience, would you have stopped for me? What if I wasn't, what if there's no bike, right? Because you see the scene, right? Mm -hmm. Bike, female, blood, accident. It's clear, right? But what if there's no bike? Would you stop? Okay, what if I'm not in town? What if I'm in the high, on the highway, empty highway, going towards the border, like near the border, would you stop? Now, has my need changed? Have I changed? But the circumstances, my context has changed. And because that context changed, it means that I somehow and my need has changed. And so, you know, when I see Alex, what do I see? Do I see the border? Do I see immigration? Do I see some dirty kid waving around his water jug trying to get somebody to stop? What do you do, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that what I wanted people to see in that piece was that context. That how do you see? There's no right or wrong answer. The whole purpose of that is to go through this reflection, to challenge yourself. And I mean, it's not that you need to have the solution or dictate what you ought to do. It's to be raising these questions and guiding the reader through this dilemma. We as writers have to be willing to challenge and guide people through that. And that was the point of like, for example, the year of the heavy moon, where I pitched that crazy story of like, hey, maybe this year isn't what we thought it was. Yes. Maybe it was our summer of love. And I thought it was. I thought it was our summer of love, 2016. <laughs> you can read it and decide for yourself. There's one other piece that I want to specifically ask you about because it's such a great piece. It's Maybe it's in this vein or maybe it's a little orthogonal to this, but 
about the dogs of uh, oh yeah, the dogs of, of what is yeah that you did, which was an Al Jazeera mm-hmm. piece. But but again, I feel like it fits because it feels like you're looking for a way to kind of I mean, ironically, it's about dogs, but to capture a certain humanity that's not captured in these stories from a different angle. So how did you how did you come up with that story? So the, the story totally originated with um, Mexican reporter, amazing investigative Mexican reporter, uh, Ignacio uh, Alvarez Alvarado, who is from Juarez, lives in Mexico City, and reports on organized crime and violence. Um, and he's done amazing work. And he did, you know, he had looked at the dogs as this kind of symptom mm-hmm. of decay, from this ongoing violence in Juarez. I mean, at one point, Ciudad Juarez, which is across the border from El Paso, was dubbed the murder capital of the world. And I saw that piece in the story as this is a way to get people to stop saying this is a drug war. Because, I mean, this was the challenge was like everything was this is narcos, 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 right? Mm-hmm. It's all... and. When that happens, you overlook the structures that allowed the narcos to take root, that allowed the violence to thrive. And so this, the story of the the dogs, and so we went and reported it, and they pick up the stray dogs every day and dump them at the city dumps. Dead dead dogs. Yeah, we were there Just for by that. The, by the hundreds. Well, dozens, yeah. Dozens, yeah. It's like St. Bernard's and all kinds of dogs. That's when I found out that like the favorite dog of Wattis is the poodle. I didn't know that. And that stayed with me. That like <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, the dog. Yeah. That's like that's the mascot of Wattis is the poodle, right? But the, the the point of the story was okay, why does this certain place have all of these dogs? Well, because that place was all housing set up for the migrants who came from southern Mexico who were recruited to work in the maquilas. Maquilas that pay less than uh, a worker's paid in China. Mm -hmm. And they're given this house that's like, you know, it it was built for workers, not families, not children, not people, workers. There were not enough schools built, not enough, you know, infrastructure, transportation, all of this, therefore allowing unmet human needs and so why are all these dogs there? Well, because you don't have enough social services. You got to get a dog to, like, watch the property. I mean, wherever you have a lot of guard dogs, that's where neglect exists, where social service neglect exists, right? Because you need the guard dog because no one else is watching out for your stuff. And so what happened was, you know, a lot of people died. And um, and so then you had a lot of people leave and they leave the dogs and so you had this one telling detail where, you know, here's Juarez. You know, people are just so beleaguered by both the characterization of this as just a narco war without looking at corruption and impunity, right? When you have like 90% impunity, well, then of course it's going to be easier to take you out because no one's going to come get you, right? Mm-hmm. And so. All of this kind of comes to a head when this dog named Canela is shot by a cop. That and people were like, "No, this is like 
something. That's okay. too much. You've already said that all of these people who've been killed had to have been somehow involved in the violence, but we know Canelo was definitely innocent. And this just goes to show the sort of disregard for human, you know, human life, any life, right? And this is in a moment, and this is very important and actually very relevant to our present moment. You know, this is a moment where from the president on down, we're saying, well, if you got killed in the violence, that's because you were involved. This is all, these are just battles amongst the bad guys. You know, this is narco stuff. Although there was plenty of information to refute that, right? And so when Canela's shot, people are like, no, the dog, I mean, they don't just, they protest for all, you know, Juarez had a very powerful uh, civic society that really came out in defense of uh, human rights and against impunity and corruption. But Canela was its own little flashpoint. And I use it in the story to explain both the disregard for life but also, this is why I, you know, I think now is very relevant and uh, to what we're living through in this country right now. Because many people look at what's happening on the border with the asylum seekers and say, "Oh, that's immigration. Mm-hmm. It's called immigration." This is how the state looks at people. What the state calls people and how it treats them. But so, I mean, I asked a version of this before and I feel like maybe you answered it, but what does it feel like to, you have been writing, you know, about these tropes, you've been writing about this gaze and then there's some way in which now that everyone's paying attention to it, you just see it happen over and over again. Like it's on CNN every day, but those tropes are there every day. So now it's almost like amplified in a way. Well, they're they're there, and too often, unfortunately, they go unchallenged. I mean, right? right? Like, so El Paso is called. Oh, this was a immigration. I mean, it's like which little slot do you put it in? Right. What and, kind of story is this? It's an immigration and story, that, and that somehow that's it. I guess you know. I I hear your question, and I think to myself, what does it mean? to me. And, you know, I started working on a book a long time ago, Uh right? (laughs) I just got back from Texas. I was on this residency, the Doby Paisano residency. You live on the Doby Ranch, the Paisano Ranch, which is near Austin. It's a 260-acre ranch, and you're alone. I was alone for four months, and then my partner joined me for the last two months of it and uh, to work on my book. And um, I've been working on this book for some time, and people have asked me, as people will do, are you almost done? <laughs> How's your book going is a question yeah, every book exactly. writer loves to receive. Yeah, and um, I realized while I was at the ranch, the book was written. Book's been done. This whole, I looked at everything, and I'm like, book's done. The book I needed to write for me was done a long time ago. But that's not the book that other people want to read. It's not the other book that I want other people to read. It's not an entirely different book. But I didn't really, you know, it was a very interesting realization to look at this and go, I wrote exactly what I needed to write for me to help me figure out a lot of the ideas that I now write about. Mm-hmm. And then to realize I wrote 
the change that had to occur for me to become the person that tells you the stories that I tell you today. And that book was that formation, my formation to become that person. And now I will write that book from the person I am today, chronicling a time of the past, but from the place I stand today, not as the um, person I was in that moment when grief unraveled everything that I believed in, when I questioned everything that holds my world and our world together. Are you talking about the death of your mother or father? Yeah, because yeah. that's when I started working on the book. Yeah. Because at the time, um, like then like now, I looked around and, you know, my parents had died and I'm at, I'm at the ranch. We're partitioning the ranch. I'm partitioning the ranch so that I get my part, my brother, my sister, right? And they're building the border wall. And people are talking about current events through these like frontier Western cowboy tropes, like in politics. You have a congressman on the House floor, Steve King, talking about, oh, we can electrify the fence. We do that with livestock. And so in that moment, everything shatters. I don't believe in anything. It's all gone to hell. And I, I set out looking for answers, right? That person will not be able to deliver the fundamental element that any writer must deliver in their work. Which is what? Knowledge. Wisdom. Not the collection of facts. Yes, that's all important. That's basic. That's like saying I showed up. Okay, I'm a journalist. I got some facts. Where's the, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. But as a writer, as a narrative writer, I need to take you somewhere and reveal something. And if I myself was not able to do that, to reach that point, how can I do it for you? So I had to get to that point to find that wisdom, to find that knowledge and like fight like hell through it. And I mean, fight like hell, like for real, because I'm one of those people that I'll just like, I started doing this with the first piece I wrote for the Oxford American. It was a music piece. I start making these scrolls. Like I take butcher paper, I put it on the wall and I outline my piece and, you know, uh, color markers so that I know like, you know, you got the narrative scene and you got some facts and you got this. We want to make sure you have a nice equal, you know, distribution so that it's not like narrative, 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 and then give you this whole thing of history and then, <laughs> you know. And so I have these, you know, I love to outline and I will outline and outline, which is, you know, essentially me going, I want to have control over this. I want to know that when I sit down to write, I've got it all figured out. And then you sit down to write and there's this part of you that has to submit. And it, for me, it really is submitting. All of those pieces of mine that you read did not turn out. Whatever may be good about them was not contained in the outline. It was the result of me, uh, as it is for any writer, sitting there with it, mm -hmm. sitting through the discomfort, sitting there going through the doubt, sitting there challenging yourself. And it's lonely. And I chew a lot of gum and eat a lot of gummy bears, you know? And, and like 
going through the journey. What is the story about? And the thing is, I you, you only find it if you sit down with it and go, everything I believe, I may be wrong. And whatever neat answer is not the right, is not, there is not one. It's like, you got to figure it out. Thank you for coming on the show. <gasps> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Many thanks to Michelle Garcia for coming into the studio. Also wanted to issue a special thanks to Carolina Miranda from the LA Times, who uh, suggested having Michelle on. Thanks, as always, to my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Lisa Garbowit. And as always, to our sponsors, Pit Writers and MailChimp. Go check out readthissummer.com. Come to the Decatur Book Festival, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.